You're listening to the Religion and Fiction Podcast. A podcast for people interested in the intersection of the sacred and story that offers insight, inspiration, and a bit of entertainment for the journey. I'm your host, Jeremy Bauma, a former pastor and theologian who writes stories under J.A. Bauma. Stories that offer entertaining escape as well as inspiring insight. In today's episode, we're going to switch things up a bit because I am a little under the weather. So we will postpone the book club until next week, but I've got a real treat for you today. Stay tuned. Hey, Religious Fiction readers. This is episode 10 of the Religion and Fiction podcast. Really appreciate you taking a listen and showing up here today for what you probably expected was week two of the Religion and Fiction book club. But alas, as I mentioned in the lead-in, I've been feeling a little under the weather the last few days. Nothing crazy, nothing major. Uh, But instead of soldiering on with my head cold and body aches, I thought instead I would give you a special treat in lieu of week two of our exploration through a reimagined faith. If you've done the reading, awesome, super duper, and apologies for any disappointment in postponing for another week. Uh, But I really want to give you a great experience through the book club, reading through Peter Daniel Young's journey, and it just made more sense for me to wait a week and instead give you a super special treat. A few weeks ago, I gave you a narrated short story read by me from my short story collection in my Order of Thaddeus thriller series. Well, this week, I thought I would give you something a little bit different, but from the same short story collection. Last time I read the short story from Matt Kapinski, and this time we're going to have Google Artificial Intelligence read you the story from Celeste Bourne's Gilded Bones short story. I promise it's going to be super awesome, and you'll be blown away, actually. I think that it sounds so realistic and super British. Apparently, the voice's name is Anya, uh, the AI overlord who is reading the story today. And I'm actually in the process of converting all of my existing novels into audiobooks, both narrated by me as well as the AI narrated versions that you will experience in this short story. So I hope you enjoy Anya reading Celeste Bourne's Gilded Bones short story. And we will look forward to reconvening to continue the exploration of Peter Daniel Young's spiritual journey through chapters 8 through 12 in A Reimagined Faith next week. Again, sorry for the switcheroo and appreciate you understanding. Until then, enjoy the story. Story 2. Gilded Bones. The sign read Celestial Bjorn and I knew I was in for a world of hurt. It was held by a stocky man with a comb for a moustache and a comb over for a haircut, wearing an ill-fitting black suit and rumply white shirt and slim black tie, clearly trying a bit hard with the attire. 
The gent was leaning against a post and slurping a Starbucks at the baggage claim. I cringed inside and groaned. Just my luck. After the all-night flight from Dallas International Airport, I wished I had rented my own vehicle for the drive over. But Zoe Corbino, my trusty operational support director, had arranged a pickup after the lengthy flight. She wanted me to be able to focus on the coming task rather than worrying about navigating my way to the mission target. She was probably right, but I was not fancying this trip. Not in the slightest. But I strolled up to the bloke anyway and introduced myself. No, I'm here for the lady on the sign, he said with a dismissive slurp of his Starbucks. Coffee too, which made it all the worse. I cleared my throat and smiled flatly. I am the lady on the sign. Celeste Bourne. Not Celestial Bjorn. He furrowed his brow and looked at the sign, trying to make out what had happened. What happened was he smoked a few too many spliffs before coming to pick me up, that's what. Silas, I'm going to kill you. With the Vatican, I added, hoping that flashing those credentials would put two and two together. That seemed to register something in the inner recesses of the man's strung-out brain. He glanced at the sign then at me. Are you sure you're not Celestial Bjorn? Don't I wish, I muttered. Strolling toward the receiving line outside the terminal I shouted, Well, come along. My chariot awaits, I presume. There was a shuffling of feet from behind and a yes ma'am in that horrid guttural dialect of the Netherlands I so loathed. A right nutter he was. Rain was coming down in angry sheets outside, the terminal a perfect cliché for the nation who made a name for itself reclaiming the land from such cantankerous bouts of nature. Rumpled man hurried past and guided me to an awaiting chariot parked in the taxicab lane with its flashes on. I groaned at the sight but followed anyway. It was a sad sort of hackney. Nothing like the regal black carriages for hire running about through my homeland, England. Just a silver Mercedes without even the comforts of leather. Climbing inside with my carry-on, the cabin reeked of boiled cabbage and meatballs, reminding me why I always drove myself even on mission. Especially on mission. The cabbie slid inside and started the car, then jolted from the curb on toward our rendezvous point. The Hague. More specifically, the Hague Penitentiary Institution. Silas had rung me the day before yesterday, using that voice of his he reserves for the special occasion he wants something. Usually a right good snogging in the back seat of his Jeep Wrangler, but quite often something special for the order of Thaddeus. Our mutual employer. I'm usually one to oblige. Especially the snogging in the back of his Jeep Wrangler, given we are engaged to be married. Although, I'd much prefer something European made to the American iconic vehicle. But it's something about teenage nostalgia or something or other that made him spring for the car. At any rate, he really ginned up the fiancé charm this time, insisting he would handle it himself but was loaded down with paperwork, reminding me for the umpteenth time that the job of Ordermaster is one tireless, never-ending stream of administrative nonsense. And I reminded him it wouldn't be if he would hire an executive assistant, as we've all been badgering him for the better part of a year. Administration was definitely not his strong suit. 
Torres was still on that archaeological dig of hers, and Gapinski was the last person Sepio wanted interviewing a thief tried by the international courts for cultural crimes against humanity. So I was left holding the bag. And quite a bag it was. I had flown a third of the way across the world to interrogate an Albanian man who had been brought up on charges in the International Criminal Court for stealing the relic arm of St. Polycarp of Smyrna from the Holy Monastery of the Dormition of the Theotokos in Ambalakiotisa in the mountainous Nafpaktos of Greece. The early church martyr had been the bishop of the Roman Smyrnian province and died a gruesome death at the hands of the empire for refusing to renounce his faith in Jesus Christ. He had been venerated by the church ever since, his remains serving as a memory marker for his wholehearted, faithful commitment to his faith in Christ. The relic had gone missing March 2013, seemingly vanishing from its proper place of veneration. It was quite the scandal in the ecclesiastical community, a relic of such import being stolen as such, not to mention amongst the Greeks. The government spared no expense to right the wrong, employing its investigative forces to bring about a resolution. When they did, they caught a break. Poor bloke who burgled the relic wasn't too keen of a burglar, the man having left fingerprints and genetic material of the sacrilegious offender. He also left behind a trail of incriminating communicative evidence in digital form. Messages and telephone calls from his cell phone on the night of the theft had arisen in the same area of the theft, which were discovered after warrants were issued. For much of 2013, recovering the right hand of St. Polycarp was a high priority for the police, as there was a keen interest in recovering the artifact in ecclesiastical circles, and it was a considerable blow to the national ego. Senior officers of the Greek police were in constant communication with Metropolitan Hierotheos of Nafpaktos for much of the year throughout the course of the investigation, joined by Interpol in an effort to recover the cultural icon. The Albanian man was apprehended trying to cross the northern border back to his homeland. However, the relic wasn't on his person, and he was tight-lipped as to its whereabouts. He however was promptly handed over to international authorities and tried for his crimes. The relic has remained missing the past eight years, never to be seen from again. Which is where my little jaunt to The Hague came in. The Albanian was nearing the end of life. Terminal pancreatic cancer. So when the chap passed, so did the location of the lost relic. The case had languished with Interpol over the last several years, and along the way Sepio got dragged into the affair. It also ended up into some X-file in a drawer in HQ. Until Silas Gray got hold of it. Silas being Silas, he became intrigued about the missing artifact, wondering why it hadn't been recovered after all these years. His interest in the early church, especially early martyrs, compounded by the inner relicologist, needless to say the order master couldn't let the case go. But rather than closing the bloody case himself, he got his fiancée to do it for him. Me. Hence the trip through the Dutch countryside getting pummeled by a thunderstorm on toward destiny in a hackney that smelled more like a West Sussex pub. We're here, Missy, the driver said, followed by a rumble of thunder in the distance as if putting an exclamation point on the announcement. 
Dark clouds hung ominously above the penitentiary, the face of which was simply ghastly. All brick, no personality. Which is to say, very Dutch. Two oversized turrets trying too hard stood guard with a broad wooden gate at the middle, closed and unwelcoming. The cabbie pulled in front of the massive doors. A poor chap with a deep scowl sauntered out into the unrelenting rain, underneath a pitiful black umbrella that wouldn't have done anyone any good. After flashing my credentials at the guard and explaining my business, we were ushered through the gate. The hackney carted me into an inner courtyard and dropped me off at an entrance. After exchanging the fare I bid him adieu and off he went, as well as I. Credentialing myself once more at a voice box, I was buzzed inside, and I ushered myself into a rather austere utilitarian vestibule manned by a gent at a metal desk. He looked up from a magazine on my arrival, then stood. Celeste Bourne, I said on approach, pulling out my Sepio ID card. Here to administer an interrogatory interview of prisoner 62352791. The man, short and rather molish by my estimation, eyed a computer monitor and nodded. He picked up a receiver, and within a few minutes, a tall blonde who put an exclamation point on the Dutch height advantage appeared through a door behind the Molish attendant. Right this way, Ms. Bourne, she said without a smile. I was led down a long corridor built of the same personality-less brick from outside, painted institutional white this time. Soon we arrived at a door with a black security panel. She flashed her card against it and opened the door upon an audible click. Another corridor greeted us. The hallway was lined by doors painted robin's egg blue, with tiny windows bared by mesh wire. Security pads anchored the handles, which told me they were jail cells. The air was tepid, humid, cloying and clawing at me. As if those inside, whoever they were, were reaching through their gates to drag me into their eternal hell. Whilst working for the Crown's government, I had been to some remarkable prisons in the crotches of the world, chief amongst them Pakistan and Afghanistan, once as a prisoner myself. But knowing the worst, international criminals, genocidal generals and ne'er-do-well dictators, were behind those doors sent a shiver creeping up my spine and sent me scurrying to keep up. Increasing my pace at the thought, the lady led me through another door after administering the same security protocol. Beyond was a modest room of eight or so cubicles, with low barriers arrayed around a central table. In the middle, a man and two others were in conversation. We made for them. As we drew near, the voice sounded oddly familiar. Nearing, there was a tone and timbre to it that struck me as eerily so. A flash from another lifetime ago, back when I still pined for Her Majesty's International Intelligence Service. Was that, no. It couldn't be. I took a careful step forward and leaned to the side, craning for a better view, heat rising up the back of my neck and flushing my cheeks with recognition at the lanky, lithe man bent over the center table, with those broad shoulders and sleeves rolled up revealing the tattoo I witnessed being applied one late night. Arabic for destiny. Nicky McGrath, I said with an incredulous gasp, entering the cubicle space. The chap turned around and literally dropped his jaw and almost dropped his folder of papers he was carrying, before his mouth widened into the grin I fell for all those years ago. Celeste Bourne. 
He took a hesitant step, as if disbelieving those emerald eyes of his set above those angular cheekbones. The born before that bloody born fellow was an international born sensation. That heat returned, and I returned a giggle. The one and only. He leaned in, sort of, as did I until we chuckled with nervous energy at the gaff, and just leaned in for a professional embrace. Which was very different from the last time I'd leaned into Nicholas McGrath. Ex-colleague with MI6 and ex-boyfriend for a brief spell. Nothing dodgy, nothing intimate. Had decided long ago that department was reserved for future Mr. Bourne. But enough to send my head whirling. Except I had no time for teenage antics. Time to put on the big girl pants and get to it. So I swallowed and prayed the Lord would promptly whisk me away. It didn't work. Nikki, I didn't know you were part of this investigation. I slapped on a smile but my voice quivered with a revealing nervous energy. And I had no idea you were the mystery agent on loan to us from across the pond. Something about a secret society buried in the bowels of the Vatican. Actually, an ecumenical Christian order buried in the bowels of the Washington National Cathedral. Same difference. I see the decade has left you as religiously barbaric as the last time I left you. Now he laughed. Tis true. Part of the growing spiritual but not religious crowd. But are you now employed by the Hellenic police? Goodness no. Still with MI6 but on loan to Interpol and their cultural crimes division. After your boss, I won Mr. Gray got in touch with us. And by getting in touch, I mean browbeat us into finally submitting to his demands. That's Silas for you, I said with a bit too much familiarity. Which Nicky promptly picked up on. He grinned and crossed his arms. Really? Do tell. I frowned. Let's keep this about the case, shall we? You no fun. Good chap. Anyway, I was brought in to supervise the interview. And jolly well glad I was, considering. I laughed but moved on. Ever the flirt. So who is our thief, anyhow? Nicky handed me a thick file. Name is Joseph Brahimi. I considered this, flipping through the stack of papers. Joseph Abraham. Interesting. Do we know anything more about him? Male. Mid-forties. Brown eyes, brown hair. A rather ghastly 60 kilos after contracting pancreatic cancer. Likes long walks on the beach and even longer nights in bed. I frowned handing back the file. Pancreatic cancer, eh? He tossed it to the table. That's right. Not many more months to live, so I suppose your boss was fortunate to catch him when he did. The Lord works in mysterious ways. None of that Jesus stuff with me, please, Nicky said with the smirk I adored back in the day. Now not so much. I'm certifiably a nun. Julie noted. He went on, Joseph was part of a radical Islamic movement in Algeria, part of the Salafi splinter movement of Sunni Islam. Of course, I smirked. Aren't they all? Now Nicky scoffed. Ever the xenophobe. Am not.
Just stating the bald face of it, given our experiences the last decade. I suppose so, but it doesn't appear his radicalism had anything to do with the actual theft. Really? Apparently it was all about the money. Aren't they all? Shall we get to it then? He retrieved the thick file from the table and gestured toward a door at the back of the room. I followed his gesture, a dark void anchored at one end with a tiny glass window glowing yellow. What now? I do suppose we could go get manicures beforehand, Nicky replied. Perhaps waltz down to the closest high street looking for sundresses to wear at our evening soiree. I threw him a look that told him to back off. He did. My blood pressure suddenly spiked, a queasiness suddenly overcoming me along with a light-headedness that compounded my embarrassment. Hadn't expected to share the interview with someone else, much less a former colleague. And former love. But the stiff upper lip is what us Brits were bred to showcase. So showcase I did. Let's get to it then. I led the way, reaching the door and fumbling with the knob. Locked. Allow me, Nicky said, poking a key in the lock and letting us inside. It was bright yellow. Far brighter than I would have liked it, or chosen as a backdrop for the interrogation. But that was Nicky for you. A by-the-books sort of lad who would crank the light to the max to throw off the interrogatee. I much more preferred low lighting. Lulled the target into a sense of ease and familiarity. Less stress tended to lend better results, the tongue loosening as the mind relaxed. Apparently Her Majesty's government had other ideas, as well as Nikki and Interpol. At the centre of the concrete room, painted the same utilitarian white as the rest of the building, a metal table stood bolted to the floor. No other windows or tables. Seated at it was the suspect. Reminded me of the late Steve Jobs, who similarly passed from pancreatic cancer. Rail thin, the orange prison jumper wilting from his frail frame, his face like a hot wax figure, the skin dripping off the bones and waiting for a last repose. His dark hair was long and stringy, but his eyes were surprisingly bright and affecting, following me as I came in after Nicky. Joseph was chained to his chair which was anchored to the floor. Two chairs awaited us. Nicky pulled one out for me, I sat. He didn't take the other, preferring to stand and lean against its back. So that's how it's going to be. Good cop, bad cop. Who was whom? Only time would tell. Nicky stepped up to the plate first, setting the file on the table with a thud. Joseph Brahimi, I am Special Investigator Nicholas McGrath with Interpol. He gestured to me, continuing, and this is Celeste Bourne with, well, an intermediary serving at the pleasure of Interpol. I tried not to frown, but after that inauspicious introduction, how could I not? Do you know why we are here? The man didn't stir. Didn't even blink or part his closed mouth. I wondered if the chap was even breathing, he was so statue still. Joseph, you have been tried and found guilty of stealing a valuable cultural icon of the Hellenic Republic, sentenced to life in prison. We want to give you the chance to set things right. Again, nothing. Now Nicky crossed his arms with a sigh, leaning back to make himself tall.
Imposing. In control. Just like the man I remembered way back when. He continued litigating the case, going over the finer points of what was known about the heist. I half listened, but my mind also drifted to the fact of the matter. That I was sitting in some interrogation cell in the Netherlands, trying to locate a long-lost relic. I crossed a leg at the thought, keeping my eyes trained on the man whilst considering what it was I was after. Relics had never been part of my religious upbringing. Was far too institutional for my parents' liking, who much more preferred their Christianity freelance. While I grew up in the church, I didn't grow up in a church, and anything that smacked of institutionalism was roundly rejected by mummy and daddy. Then, when I eventually embraced Christ as my own Lord and Saviour, I had reservations about venerating such objects of the faith, believing such acts were idolatrous. Which was a bit ironic now. Because not only was I readying to extract the location of a rather obscure yet important relic from a thief, I was engaged to be married to one of the primer relicologists in the world. One end of my mouth curled upward at the thought whilst Nicky continued on with his litigation, recalling how Silas and I first became acquainted, through his work on the Shroud of Turin, the Christian relic of all Christian relics. Which eventually led me to partnering with him on several more missions, and him becoming my boss, and then his fiancé. What a whirlwind the past few years had been. But back to the task at hand. Relics. In graduate school, I grew in my appreciation for these memory markers of the faith. A Brit eventually won me over, the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright suggests relics can be explained in terms of God's grace working in and through the physical life of the person, even after death, their bodies becoming regarded as a special place where God's love and presence are made known to both the faithful and those seeking faith. Figured if the Bishop of Durham could accept such practices, then I could as well. Not that I fancied myself a relic venerator or anything. Not in the academic sense as Silas had, not in the religious sense as others had. It was an appreciation from afar, though I understood the value of retaining these touch points to our collective Christian past. And this one was of particular note. Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna who had been cancelled before cancelling was in cultural vogue. His death was a captivating account of his uncompromising adherence to the vintage Christian faith in the face of a militantly anti-Christian culture. The Church of Smyrna wrote about this account to a neighbouring church as an encouragement during times of intense apostasy and persecution by antichrists in their day. Perhaps that was precisely why such a touchpoint was valuable in our day, given the rising sense of cancellation in the West for beliefs that run against the progressive grain. And it seemed time to remind the good thief of that point. Nicky took a breath after his opening statement, offering a window for me to act. I wonder if I could interject, I said, holding up a finger. By all means, Agent Bourne. Had to smile at that. Agent Bourne. Hadn't been an agent, in the traditional MI6 sense, in over a decade. Somehow it brought me back to it all. To us, even. I cleared my throat and got on with it. Joseph, may I call you that? Of course I knew I could. But it was a disarming tactic I had used back in the field. 
a way for the interrogatee to grant me permission. I found the more they engaged in such openness, the more they opened up. I hoped it worked here. He stared at me flatly through hollow blank eyes. The man's sallow skin looked more dreadful now under the fluorescent lights, almost translucent, which added a measure of haunting dread to the man I was about to interrogate. A few beats ticked by but he nodded. Good. Well then, Joseph. As Nikki, or rather Agent McGrath indicated, my name is Celeste Bourne. I am an agent with Sepio, an outfit with a Christian religious order called the Order of Thaddeus. We seek to promote Christianity through various projects, one of which is the recovery, preservation, study, and sharing of Christian relics. Hence why I traveled across the world to have a bit of a chat with you. Again those hollow eyes, sunk behind sickly cheekbones, starred at me without emotion, without indication of anything. Should be interesting. As you know, what brings me here today is the matter of Saint Polycarp, patron saint of earaches actually, which I sort of find amusing. A sudden flinch in those eyes set me back on my feet. A glance to the left before shifting right, indicating the man was hiding both truths and lies. Wasn't expecting a tell so soon. This was getting interesting. At any rate, there is an account of his martyrdom, aptly titled The Epistle Concerning the Martyrdom of Polycarp, which primarily depicts him as a sort of kindly, saintly old man. However, he was also a fierce guardian of orthodoxy. Told the heretic Marcion that he was the firstborn of Satan to his face he did, for denying that the Old Testament is scripture. One of the reasons the Order is so keen to recover his memory marker, given recent assaults upon vintage Christianity. Sounds like quite the character, Josie finally said, voice high and heady. And also surprisingly strong. There was a hoarseness to it, but with real air behind it. Which was heartening to be sure, to find him engaging so soon. I propped my elbows on the table, then my chin on my hands and smiled. Are you a religious man, Joseph? He shrugged. I suppose so. Nikki scoffed from behind. Suppose so. You are a known member of the Salafi splinter movement of Sunni Islam, with known associates confirming as much. At this Joseph shifted, his manacles echoing loudly in the room. He frowned but nodded. Fine. What of it? As a religious man, I went on, seizing control again, I assume you understand the affinity we humans have towards sacred objects. Such as Muhammad's battle standard, even his hair and tooth. Suppose an American were to abscond with those sacred relics of your holy prophet. He leapt in his seat, the whole room seeming to shake now as he bared his teeth at me and bugged his eyes like a maniac whilst screaming something in Albania, then in Arabic. Would have leapt right over the table and tried to strangle me had he not been restrained. Nearly leapt back myself, but I managed to remain seated. Nicky shouted at him to calm himself, and two guards appeared, rushing over to restrain him and command calm. For my part I remained in my chair, though it took a bit of a breath to wind down my heart. Thankful for those years with MI6 to hone my nerves into the steel they are, flinching a bit but otherwise not giving the man the satisfaction. Or the power. Finally the man calmed himself, appearing as if the wind had gotten knocked out of him. 
Imagined he used up every last morsel of energy to come at me. Hopefully it would be his last and the energy drain would tilt in my favor. I straightened my jacket and crossed a leg, grabbing his file on the table. Now where were we? I did not mean to offend Joseph. I was merely trying to explain what it might feel like for Christians to have a similar relic absconded with. I have maintained my innocence from the beginning, he bellowed. Stuff and nonsense is what that is, Nicky said as I flipped through the file. The evidence is incontrovertible, and you were declared guilty by a unanimous verdict. And don't forget the fact you confessed, you bloody scammer. That was coerced. Oh bloody hell it was not. Joseph and Nicky went back and forth whilst I had a flip through the file. Covered all the relevant evidential reports. The surveilling of his mobile device, the first interrogations in which the man did at first confess. Then there was his past work, which was minimal and substandard for his age, his association with Salafism, along with the radical plots that had been uncovered by particular cells in his hometown, his known associates, including friends, an old girlfriend and mum, but no father. I studied that portion some more as the two men continued going at it. Something was in this folder that hadn't yet been considered. Something that would break the case open I just knew it. Something niggling, something nagging at me to pay attention. But what? Setting the folder down I stood and pulled out my mobile, walking to the exit. Celeste, Nicky called out. I put up a hand and left, calling HQ for a check-in. And for some assistance. Hey Celeste, Zoe answered, the clattering of a keyboard coming through. How goes it? Well, I've made it to The Hague and have just stepped out for some air and some help. Sure thing. Zoe, first of all. I turned away from the guard standing at the ready and whispered into my mobile, why did no one tell me about Nicky McGrath? Who's Nicky McGrath? My ex-partner at MI6 and ex-boyfriend. Oof. That's not at all awkward. Is he hot? What? I exclaimed, Nicky turning toward me and heat rising to my cheeks. I smiled and waved him away, then left. I hissed a reply, no he isn't hot. Well he is a bit lush. That isn't the point. Zoe returned to her clattering. Um hum. Does Silas know you're spending the day with your former lover? Apparently not, if he stuck me with the chap all day. And don't call him my former lover. Sounds super dodgy that way. Anyway, I need a favor. Something lover boy can't fix. Zoe. She cleared her throat. Sorry. Shoot. We're looking into the theft of the Saint Polycarp relic. Right. The gilded appendage. And yes. The suspect who was convicted is named Joseph Brahimi. To say he has been less than cooperative is an understatement, but my gut tells me the bloke knows where the relic ended up. And what do you want me to do about it? Look into his background, his known associates, particularly his family. What specifically do you want me to delve into? Everything.
Bank records, financials, international travel, medical records, criminal records, real estate transactions, anything that might shed light on the situation, including his family. What kind of light? I paused, considering the question. Not sure. But I'll know it when I see it. Zoe said she'd get on it and asked if I'd fetch Nikki's number for her. I told her to bugger off and promptly ended the call. Then re-entered the interrogation room. Meeting me at the door, Nikki asked, Everything all right? Perfectly. Why? Just making sure you weren't getting cold feet. That you weren't getting scared off with Joseph putting your feet to the fire. He smiled and winked. Which is it? Cold or hot feet, I asked. He furrowed his brow without answer. I think you're mixing metaphors there, Nicky. I patted him on the arm and retook my seat, ready to re-engage and retake the conversation. May I tell you his story, Polycarps? I asked again with the permission getting. He blinked, then nodded. So I went for it. His martyr's story begins amidst a violent persecution of the Smyrnian church. His friends begged him to leave the region but he refused. Instead of fleeing he remained stubbornly faithfully fixed inside a country house not far from the city and praying for the church. Soon the empire came for the bishop after torturing a houseboy to learn of the man's whereabouts. When they arrived the old man came downstairs and ordered that his captors be given food and drink. All he asked in return was for an hour of prayer to prepare for his prophesied demise. He ended up praying out loud for two hours and all were struck with awe and regret. Finally, the bishop was placed atop a donkey and marched into the city, where he was persuaded to renounce his faith. Come now, some men pleaded, where is the harm in just saying Caesar is Lord and offering the incense and so forth when it will save your life? Joseph's head cocked to the side. He grunted, what is that about? The imperial cult of emperor worship, I explained. T'was a central component of life in the empire, and one that became grounds for the imperial pogrom of Christian persecution when believers refused to worship Caesar as Lord, instead insisting that Jesus is Lord and worshipping only him as such. Shifting in my chair and drawing closer to the man, I continued, at any rate, their pleas for him to worship the emperor fell on deaf ears, and eventually Polycarp was led into the town arena. There, a deafening cry for his blood arose. He was brought before the governor, who also urged Polycarp to recant. But Polycarp would not relent. Instead, he strode toward his death with head held high, then fell silent. A silence that felt like an eternity, never dipping his head and never averting his gaze from his condemner. Sounds like an honourable man. Interesting revelation to hear the interrogatee finding favour with the object of his thievery. I tucked it in my head and moved on. I nodded. He was. Finally Polycarp addressed the ruler, Eighty and six years have I served him, acting as the servant of this Christ you yourself revile, and he never did me any injury. He has done me no wrong. Answer me this. How then can I blaspheme my king, the one who saved me? There was a sigh from behind and a shuffling of the feet. Was Nicky exasperated with my interrogation? 
I glanced behind to find the man standing tall with arms crossed and a cross-looking face. Throwing him a furrowed brow, frowning look of irritation, I went back to my story. My interrogation. To which the crowd responded with thunderous, resounding mockery, casting vegetables at him from the stands. The proconsul threatened him with death by lion mauling, and Polycarp said to call them. The Roman official threatened him with fire consumption, and he bellowed for him to bring it on. So the emperor did, but also by the bishop's willing hands, who placed them behind himself for the guards to bind, giving not a struggle when they secured him. Like a distinguished ram taken out of a great flock for sacrifice, and prepared to be an acceptable burnt offering unto God. I took a pause, letting the words settle. Joseph swallowed, never taking his eyes off from me. Miraculously, I continued, something curious happened. The fire seemed to shape itself into the form of an arch, like the sail of a ship when filled with the wind. Instead of consuming Polycarp, it circled the body of the martyr. It was reported that Polycarp appeared within the flames not like flesh which is burnt, but as bread that is baked, or as gold and silver glowing in a furnace. And it was perceived that such a sweet odour had come from the pyre, as if frankincense or some such precious spices had been smoking there. The ruler motioned the guards toward the fire, issuing a command to pierce Polycarp through with a dagger. And one did, striking his stomach and slashing his neck. Soon the flames hissed to nothing, having been doused by the martyr's blood. The guards then built a new pyre and set it ablaze, eventually casting Polycarp's body upon it, where it was instantly consumed. Eventually Christians laid hold of his remains, and the church has been venerating him ever since. What does any of this have to do with me? Joseph finally spoke again. Not so much you as it does your mum. He stiffened, eyes briefly going wide and chest rising suddenly with a startled breath. More tells that told me I was onto something I had seen earlier in his file. Now he narrowed his eyes and swallowed. What about my mother? She's a devout Christian, is she not? No answer. But like any good attorney, I already knew it. Greek Orthodox actually, isn't that right? Now he shifted but again remained mum. Baptised into the church, I went on. Raised and confirmed. Daddy passed but mum was a faithful Christian who even faithfully brought you up in the same faith, isn't that right? He lunged for me again with a scream, what does any of this have to do with me? A hot, stale, vinegary breath washed over me as the guards rushed into the room. I was more steeled this time around so it wasn't a surprise. But the stench turned my stomach. As they got him under control again, my mobile rang. I pulled it out. Zoe. Right on cue. I answered yes Zoe. Tell me you have something. She explained what she had found, the maniac carrying on with surprising strength. Slowly a victorious grin spread across my face. I knew exactly where the relic was hiding all these years. Thanks Zoe. You're a champ. Stuffing the phone in my pocket, I returned to my seat. Nikki whispered in my ear, what's going on mate? I waved him off and plowed forward. Your mother has a record in immigration control of making a visit across the Hellenic border. Joseph's eyes fell but he stirred not saying nothing.
The day before you were arrested. More nothing which wasn't surprising. I've also learned of an unfortunate ailment your mother has suffered. I could sense Nicky perking up, leaning toward Joseph with interest. Who remained still, as if dying now from the weight of realizing what was coming. I continued, a dreadfully difficult ear condition that makes it almost unbearable to live, with all that ringing and aching, like a bee burrowed deep in her skull. More stillness. It was a throwaway comment earlier but it's true, Polycarp is the patron saint of earaches. Did you know that, Joseph? He stirred now shifting and wincing. Sweating even, a line of perspiration beading at his hairline. I leaned forward now, going for the kill. Or did she know? Did she put you up to it, knowing that the very cure that would relieve her misery was sitting in an orthodox church across the border? Joseph gasped, eyes going wide and mouth hanging open. Which was all I needed. I looked to Nicky, one end of my mouth curling upward with satisfaction. I still had it. After all these years. Right jolly good, Nicky said. I think we've got all we need now. I stood. Agreed. The two of us went to leave, clearly having all we needed by the look of it. No, wait, Joseph said weakly, trying to rise for a renewed fight but knowing the jig was up. I turned back, finding a defeated, broken man. A man who knew his mum was in the dock. It wasn't her fault, he said, sobbing now with head buried in his chest. It wasn't her fault. I smiled. I know, Joseph. But we'll be needing that relic anyhow. I was right, of course. Interpol in coordination with EU authorities, and the help of MI6's direction under Nikki's leadership, recovered the long-lost hand of Polycarp. Still encased in solid gold and not a scratch to be found. The bloke's mum had indeed stashed the precious relic in her home, erecting a special shrine for it even. And according to her testimony, which I would learn later from Nikki, her ear troubles evaporated. Coincided with the day she took the relic from her son for safekeeping, which led me to believe perhaps she was in on it more than Joseph let on. Understandably, Nikki was gobsmacked. Not only in the apparent role an 80-year-old ailing woman played in the disappearance of an important cultural artifact, but also in its apparent mystical qualities. Of course he thought it was all rubbish. Nothing but the power of suggestion and the ravings of an old hag. I wasn't so sure. Given my tenure at Sepio with the Order, I had seen things that no one would believe. Had experienced supernatural occurrences that could only be attributed to the Lord and my faith. How did you know, Nicky asked, walking me back to the front. I shrugged. A hunch. A jolly well damn good hunch, I'd say. Well, I had help. A good team to carry me across the finish line. That's a team I'd want to be on any day of the week. He grinned at me, the air seeming to rise with a familiar charge. Until it didn't. I leaned forward and pecked him goodbye on the cheek. For old time's sake. He returned the favor, taking a bit too long in my book, but it was still an innocent goodbye. Nice seeing you again, Bourne, he said with a boyish grin. You too, Nicky.
Perhaps we'll do it again sometime. I laughed, turning to leave. Not until hell freezes over. Stranger things have happened. Don't I know it? Leaving behind the Hague in a car personally summoned by Nicky, I couldn't help but consider the legacy of Polycarp. The stamina and fortitude it took to face down the powers that threatened the church and then go to the grave for his faith, by fire no less. Retracing our steps back to the airport, the sky clearer now with a rainbow lancing across the horizon, a passage from the Book of Acts sprang to mind. In chapter 20, Paul was readying to leave Ephesus for Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit compelled him to go, even though he didn't know what would happen to him there. The only thing he knew for certain was that in every city the Spirit warned him that he was facing prison and hardships. His answer. I do not count my life of any value to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the good news of God's grace. Paul and Polycarp. Valuing their faith more than their own lives. May I bear half an ounce of courage as they. Thanks so much for taking a listen to Celeste Bourne's relic story, Gilded Bones. If you like the story, details are found below where you can purchase the short story collection. Next week, we will reconvene to explore the spiritual journey of Peter Daniel Young in chapters 8 through 12 of A Reimagined Faith. Until then, happy reading.